Daniel Gilad is a sound engineer and music producer that has been working in the industry for over a decade. Music for me is about creating relationships through sound. Each piece of music has its own personality, quality, and design. It is a reflection of the artist's soul and a small window to their story. Daniel has provided services for live sound, studio production, mixing, and mastering to some of Hawaii's finest artists. It is my job to be able to translate it and shape it to be shared with the world. Traveling the globe has exposed Daniel to a variety of music, cultures, and relationships. He brings this breadth of perspectives and experiences to his craft and has worked in many different genres, including folk, rock, hip hop, world, pop, sound healing, and meditation. Contact Daniel at dgsoundcreations.com to learn more about how he can help you with your next creative project. dgsoundcreations.com for all of your audio production needs. I am pleased and honored to provide post-production services to What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. This is the 15th episode of season two, and we are stoked to be back on the air, bringing you another bushel of episodes this winter spring of 2021. In the first semester, we brought you a former teacher of the year, a po'okumu from Laupahoihoi, a published author, a student climate change activist, the director of last year's student post-production team, among many other educators and education leaders. In the second semester of season two, we have an incredible lineup of guests, including a student entrepreneur, the founder of PBS Hawaii's Hikino program, a passionate small school advocate, an award-winning history teacher, and two Hawaii State Teacher Fellows. Today, my guest is Jonathan Medeiros, who has been teaching and learning about language arts and rhetoric for 15 years with his students on the island of Kauai. He frequently writes about education policy, was in the first cohort of the Hawaii State Teacher Fellows Program, and is the former director of the Kauai Teacher Fellowship. He also enjoys building things, surfing, and spending time with his wife, also an educator, and his daughters. Jonathan is currently working on a collection of essays, a collection of poems from his family's daily writing practice during the global pandemic shutdown, and a journal about his days out on the ocean. He is a self-styled contrarian, so stay tuned to see how that plays out. And now, here's my conversation with Jonathan Medeiros. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. So quick opening round, Jonathan. Um, referencing something you wrote about the magic teachers need. Mm -hmm. I, re I read at uh, jonathanmedeiros.com that you love building things, surfing, spending time with your wife, Erin, and your daughters. Um, so what is it about 
surfing that gets you on the board heading out to the break. Uh, well, and there are a lot of things. One of the one of the things that's very important to me about surfing is that that's a place where I can just be kind of like I go, it's almost like meditating um, for, for other people. Some people go on long walks. It, it helps me just kind of get out of my head and be in the present moment in my body and um, just completely, you know, kind of observing the present moment as it changes. Um, plus, it's just super fun. I mean, I, I, I was born and raised here and the water is very important to me. So it's where I go to, you know, recenter, decompress, exercise mm. a little bit, but mostly it feels good to my mind and my heart. Mm. So w- what kinds of things have you built and where does your mind go when you're building stuff? Is There's a similar... There's a similar thing that happens when you get lost in an activity, actually. Hmm. Um, I build all kinds of things. Uh, you know, I started small, building small pieces of furniture for my family, a, a bookshelf, um, a bed, uh, those kinds of things, you know, chairs, benches, and then they got bigger and bigger. And so I, I, I built up a deck off of my house, and then my friend asked me to do one for his, and we actually... <laughs> Um, we, uh, you know, last year I took the wall off of my house, which is an in- insane project. I don't know if you've ever done that. Like there was a, literally the exterior wall. We just cut it out with a chainsaw and, ex- you know, we built an, ex- an expansion. We added, uh, 200 square feet to, to the kitchen. I live in a very tiny, like 90 year old house. It's, it was 600 square feet. So we added a mm. tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, I built a wooden surfboard last year as well. And all of these things, you know, I grew up working on a farm with, with my father and everything was kind of, you just do it yourself, right? We didn't hire people to come and uh, help us, you know, castrate the goats or whatever, um, (laughs) or plow the fields or, you know, fix the tractor that if you had to do something, you had to do it yourself. And um, so that's something that was instilled in me early is like the desire to learn about something by trying to make it mm. if I can. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so it, when I'm in that moment of like that hard work of building something, building a deck or, or, an, um, or a new wall or framing in a new wall, you, your, my, my mind kind of gets lost in that too where – I'm, I'm extremely focused on that present moment of solving whatever that particular mm. construction problem might be. Um, I get a, it feels good to be able to solve those problems and then reflect back and, you know, look at all the mistakes I made and, right. and, and then go, Hey, now I could do that better. <laughs> right. Right. After you're, <laughs> after you're done. Right. Right. Of course. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, later in the semester, I'm going to interview your wife for this podcast and she's an educator, but this is a chance for you, Jonathan, to talk about her. What does she bring to your partnership? What are the coolest things about her, the way she thinks the things that she does? Yeah, she is, uh, amazing. I, I'm incredibly lucky to have her as a, as a partner. We, one of the things I value the most about her is that um, like myself, we are both very just kind of internally driven to think about things and to talk about things and to, and to process. We're both very curious and make connections. And so I've always had this 
like built-in mentor. There's our beautiful bell. Oh, let's just let it chime for a second. <laughs> Very good. So she, you know, she, I, I've always had this, I want, my brain is always processing. Uh, it, like there's always something happening in my brain. I, I, I've, re- I've written about this before as well. Like I see connections between things that may or may not actually be there, but it's a thing my brain does. I see these connections and then I start to wonder about how could that, is that plant there related to this other plant because the leaves look similar? And I start to think through how could it be? And, and um, I have this person in Aaron who helps me with that kind of processing. So that's just like one of the, in a selfish way, I learn so much from being able to have that person in my life who is equally um, stoked about, you know, thinking and talking and being critical and curious. Mm. Um, she's a, a much more brilliant than I am. And she makes these amazing connections that I, I don't see until she points them out. Um, and, you know, has a wonderful knack with language, learning other languages and, um, mm. is, you know, I, I could go on and on. She, <laughs> she so. She's she's a thought partner in almost every way. Yes, that definitely. You can imagine, right? Yeah, that's awesome. So, tell us about your daughters. I've interviewed guests whose parents were or are teachers. So I wonder, speaking of empathy, um, mm. what you imagine it is like for your daughters to have two teachers as parents. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't. Uh, they're amazing people as well. Um, they're both in elementary school. So it's a really cool time. Mm. Again, selfishly, like it was amazing to see the public education system from that other viewpoint. I'm so embedded in it as a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And then prior to that as a student myself, but now I get to see it as a parent and through their eyes. um, And I'm I'm often blown away by what they are doing and learning I think I know that my older daughter, I, she is equally intellectually stimulated. She's nonstop reading and writing and talking mm. and, and enjoys that about our family, that that's the kind of family we are. So I don't know if she would connect that to us being teachers per mm, se, right. but it's what makes us good teachers. And it's something that both of my daughters enjoy as well. So they, they like they like that part about us. Um, there's this funny thing that like she definitely trusts her teachers more than she trusts us when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to things about school, right? Like if if Aaron or I say something like, "Oh, oh, your teacher meant this," or you know, "This is happening tomorrow," or "Here's the link," if it didn't come from her teacher, <laughs> it has little little to no credibility. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious, right? Yeah. That's that's awesome, um, and and so I imagine that oftentimes kids, because of the way that they're taught, really need a break from that. But it doesn't sound like that's the case in your family. That you you're all sort of perpetually learning and thinking and doing, and that notion of having to take a break from all that isn't really there. Yeah, I think that they've all 
they were we were lucky that they had amazing teachers even when they were three or four and, and they were in a pre-k program um, mm-hmm. that helped to reinforce the joy of that that simple joy of discovery um, and I was talking about curiosity before and that simple joy of learning something by trying it out that's something that Aaron and I value and so we kind of model it and that's the way we just kind of live our lives and the kids do that too but then they they just had these teachers I don't know coincidentally or luckily that reinforced that at school so that mm. it never felt I, to, to them it, it often didn't feel to them like school was a different kind of learning it mm. was another place to do this kind of cool curious exploration learning right mm, wow um, which I just really value it it did it we didn't run into it the, the only time when I started to see what maybe some teachers are, are students run into where they're like the negative sides of school like they started to get over it was like when we first switched in this last March and some teachers we were all caught off guard one of my daughters like at first what they were doing for school when we first shut down was by necessity very kind of rote and it didn't feel good anymore and that so like that moment felt not cool for and so we needed to figure out Hmm. schedules and breaks at that point Hmm. right right wow that's super interesting so um finally um at least in this set of questions um speaking of jonathanmaderos.com so what's the value of an educator putting elements of himself his writing his poetry his inner mind up on the web for anyone to see and explore Hmm. that's a good question i um, I've asked myself that question, Josh, like, why, <laughs> why am this, I doing is this? Narciss- this is narcissism. What, do, who, um, who wants to see this? I, I think that one of the things that's very valuable about it is that this is the way I process the world is by, by making those connections, by exploring connections between things that don't seem related by talking about those connections by writing about them. And in fact, writing is a way that I, that I actually even, it's part of my thinking. I don't often know exactly what I feel about something Hmm. until I've completely processed it. And that might be talking it out um, or writing it out. And then, so, so the writing itself is part of my learning process. So I feel like showing that I, you know, that's something that's visible, visible to my students and to anybody who's in my class. But then kind of showing that in another way as a, you know, publicly, um, I feel like it's, Mm. it's modeling that, that type of processing that I think is a valuable thing to bring to school. Mm. So it's just, I don't know, trying to uncover a little bit to show Mm. that, um, that side of the way I am as a person, but that's also the way I am professionally. I don't know. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't totally know if that made sense. sense. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And and what's so cool is that, you know, in in the many struggles of my life, I've been told over and over again, um, and often it comes through books that you're reading, trying, you know, self-help type books. Yeah. You know, write a journal, write a journal. I've never been mm-hmm. a sit down and write a journal person. And then one day 
I decided to write a short article on LinkedIn and I thought, wow, Shazam, this was fun. And I have <laughs> no idea if anybody ever read it. Well, you do, you find <laughs> out, you know, people might like it, but you don't really know if they read it. And then I right. decided like, I don't care if anybody read it. I had a lot of fun writing it. And now I've got like 40 articles up there. So it's just a blast to do yeah. that. Um, and I put myself yes. out there sometimes, right? I mean, yes. yeah. And I think that's, you're, you're putting your finger on something like that's an important, it, the act, like that act of writing it is valuable in and of itself, whether somebody else reads it or not. And of, of course you hope somebody does and get something from it, yeah. but it's valuable on its own. And that's something that I try to teach my students is that, you know, exploring your voice and being able to communicate what you feel and think mm. is important on its own. And you should be allowed to do that. Um, and you, you mentioned something else about being vulnerable or putting yourself out there. It's risky to do that. That's a, that's a, a risk, right? To, mm -hmm. to put that out and show it to other people. And I bring that to my classrooms and also to my work with other teachers too, is we need to encourage that kind of risk taking, mm. but we also have to, um, especially with people who young people who have maybe never taken those risks set up an environment where it's at least initially feels safe to take those kinds of risks. Right. Right. Um, because imagine if you, I mean, too many of our kids grow up never being able to take those kinds of risks and put themselves out there. And, and then I, they're missing all these opportunities to you know, to grow and to share their perspective. Right, right. Yeah, I know it's a really trippy thing when you hover over the publish button for a, a minute, <laughs> just thinking to yourself, like, am I gonna, am I gonna hit the button or no? <laughs> and there's something quite reflective and quite extraordinary about that moment. And uh, I would, I would love for every kid to have an opportunity, multiple opportunities to do, to go through that moment. Um, right. So, so this is a perfect segue, Jonathan, to. Um, uh, some work that I want to do or some conversation I want to have about, uh, about your actual teaching. So your, your resume is super interesting. You lead with what you call a summary of skills. And the first mm -hmm. is, and I quote, extensive knowledge of and experience teaching language arts, literature, and composition, as well as critical inquiry and empathy skills through inclusive and diverse teaching methods. So what are these inclusive and diverse teaching methods? And if I were to shadow your students for a day, what would I experience mm -hmm. in terms of your methods? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. It's, um, now I'm feeling self-conscious. Those are definitely central to the way I view the classroom. And what I would say is that I, as I plan instruction, I'm always coming through the lens of um, trying to make something relevant to the student. I want the student to see themselves, mm -hmm. to explore their voice, to know that even though their voice might be in a different language, that it matters just as much as my voice. Um, so I have all these ideas in my head. I want the students to see themselves, to see each other, and to s explore connections between themselves and each other. And that's where we get to the empathy part. If we can be curious about each other, we might eventually see how we're similar, which might eventually help us build empathy with each other, et cetera, et cetera. So 
I have all these things. I, that's like my goal up front. So then it, I'm not thinking about, I need them to read book X or I need them to learn how to write a five paragraph essay. And then how can I shoehorn in some, um, you know, empathy skills or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what you might see in my class is students doing a lot of connecting to themselves. Hmm. So whatever we might be reading at the time or listening to or, or exploring, it might, it might be a picture or an image, a poem, a song, an essay, etc. Whatever the, the kind of source is, a very typical question that I have the students focus on is um, to, I'll, I'll ask them to prove to me that you understand what this author did by doing your own version. Ah, uh, wow. Right. So they might, for example, they'll show me that they understood the quote-unquote rhetorical choices or language choices of Punani Burgess in her poem, Choosing My Name, mm. by, by writing their own version of it. And if, and if I see this, a similar rhetorical choices in their poem, they're showing me that they've learned what I was teaching as a quote-unquote language arts teacher. But more importantly, they're exploring their own names, right? They're exploring their own selves. And... Um, and then they're getting a chance to share that thing and say, mm. my life is just as important as Punani Burgess' life. Um, so that would be, that's a, a specific example uh, of something you might see that pattern repeated over and over again in my classroom. Mm. Wow. And now, you know, you know what happens so often when I do these interviews, Jonathan, is that I start thinking, you know, I want to be back in school again. It happened <laughs> the last episode that I did with Matthew Tom at Stevenson. Yeah. I just, I wanted to go back and do middle school again because my, <laughs> yeah. my middle school was horrible. Um, <laughs> and everything that he talked about that day made me want to be back with him um, yeah. because everything for him was about storytelling and about right. exactly what you're talking about, making every part of education relevant to my experience of the world. Um, and so I'm going to feel that as I'm shadowing your student as they go yeah. through. Yeah, that's very cool. So you also list in your skills, and I quote, extensive leadership experience, including instructional coaching, teacher mentoring, programmatic advisory, and editing of professional essays and articles. So I, I would love to hear a story about a time when you coached and mentored a peer educator and the outcome is something you smile about whenever you recall it. <clears throat> um, that's a, that's a good question. I, and I've done, you know, mentoring is such an interesting role in, especially in state of Hawaii, I think, um, you know, they've tried to, they've tried to formalize it over the years and now have like specific training that you do. If you're going to be a quote unquote, um, high D Hawaii DOE teacher mentor, Mm -hmm. And, and I've gone through some of that training and, and, um, myself and was, so I've, I've been like kind of officially assigned as a mentor, but I, I also think of instructional mentoring and, and just mentoring in general as, as a, a thing that happens organically. So as a department chair, I, I made a point to kind of pair everybody up. Like, this is your partner. This is your, you know, this is a person that you go to. Um, I also was trained to do that kind of coaching or another kind of coaching by a principal that we had a few years ago, and she hired somebody named Gail Elkins, who was extremely focused on like just observing mm. and saying to the other teacher what you observed. 
And so there's no judgment involved in that. And so that that's something that I think is very powerful. And, and I, um, so in my formal and informal mentoring roles, I, I try to kind of take that tact is just say, you know, this is, what are you asking them? What do you, what's your goal for today? What do you want? And, 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 and being very specific about what I observe and then listening a lot. Like that's, a, mm. there's a lot about listening. So somebody I think about when you ask that question specifically is, um, our person who's our current department chair who moved here, um, I think 10 or 11 years ago and was already a, a brilliant experienced teacher. She had been teaching for five or six years on the mainland. Um, but she was having a specific issue with, um, like not, not quite discipline issues, but feeling like kids were not listening to her and like maybe she didn't carry authority in the classroom or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but again, I didn't. So she asked me to come in. I was the permature at the time. And, and I did that thing that I just described is like, I just, I didn't critique her. I don't like to act like, here's what you need to do. Here's your wisdom. I, that is obviously annoying to hear from somebody, right? To hear, yeah. it, it starts to sound like a lecture and you're pedantic. So I, I watched, and I had already watched your class because as a good colleague and department chair, you, you're in people's, I feel like that's a, a wonderful thing to do is to just watch each other anyway. Um, and I also go into every one of these situations, sorry for the minor digressions. Mm -hmm. I go into every one of these situations with the attitude of, I want to learn. So this is connected to, I'm not there to tell you what to do better. You asked me to come in and I'm grateful because I'm going to learn something by sitting here. This, mm -hmm. That's always, that's just my point of view on the world is I'm going to go somewhere and learn something. So I'm after this class with this person, I'm sitting down and I, you know, started with a simple question. So tell me how, you know, how, how did you think it, how did you think it went? Something like that. This was eight years ago now. Um, and then I just listened to her talk and, and I said, yeah, I, and I kind of confirm her own yeah. observation. Yes, I saw that. Yes, I saw that too. Well, what do you think you can do about that? You know, poking with these kinds of questions. So I'm not telling her what to do. We're just, it's just a, opening that line uh, of communication and, and kind of modeling that questioning until we get to some answers like, okay, yeah, let's try this or let's try that. And, um, you know, if she asked me for some, well, what do you do, John, when that happens? You know, I'll respond specifically. And that person, um, you know, it's not something that changes. It's not like a magic trick. She didn't like ima magically everything was different the next day. Uh, she had a difficult line that year coming in in the middle of the year, et cetera. But now is um, our department chair leading the rest of us in amazing um, growth. So wow. that's a thing that I always think about, you know, yeah. um, the way she's grown over the years. And, yeah. and I, again, I don't want to like, I didn't do that. That's not because I'm an amazing person. I just felt lucky that I was able to mm. have that relationship with her. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the things that I love about the whole concept of shadowing a student is that, you know, anytime you say, well, you know, I'm going to come into your classroom and observe you, that's just such a 
moment fraught with peril. Yeah, um, yes. But if I say, well, you know, I'm going to come in and I'm going to shadow one of your students, then and you go about and do your thing, then there's a different pathway that's happening there. Um, yeah. And later when we get a chance to talk about it, it, the whole thing just sort of gets inverted and you have a chance to have, a, you know, a real listening moment where it's like, well, you know, uh, what did it feel? What did it feel like to be shadowing this student of mine? And so on yeah. and so forth, right? So I, I love it when yep. things get changed up like that. Yes. Yeah. So also, Jonathan, in your skills list, you you state that you are, and I, I, I don't mean to <laughs> make you feel abashed here, but I'm just, <laughs> I'm using these as, as a way to springboard to a question. So yeah. um, that you are a highly effective teacher of rigorous, relevant, and challenging content in diverse set settings. So Jonathan, let's imagine a new Oh boy, and fresh conversation about teacher effectiveness. And, uh -huh. and clearly teacher evaluation conversations are emotional and at times angry and difficult. <laughs> so reimagine teacher evaluation for me. Like how does a culture get to a place where evaluation of our teachers is by and large positive and uplifting and nurturing if you agree that that's the good goal that you want to get to? Yeah. I do agree with that. I, I do agree that, and I, I don't. I don't like using that word evaluation because it has that connotation of, you know, it comes with a negative connotation as well. So it's even hard to have the conversation while using the word evaluation. Yeah, um, it's what I imagine. I, I kind of alluded to this in that long answer to your last question about mentoring somebody. It's, it's the reason I value um, being able to just be in each other's classrooms uh, is because we all grow. Like, I'm not there to evaluate you, and you're not in my classroom to evaluate me. Yeah. Where you're there to, because you're, you're learning and I'm learning. Um, so that focus on, on growth is very important. So I, I don't even know, like, you know, language is important to me. I might even suggest the first thing we need to do is re relook at the word evaluate. Yeah, and, let's. Uh, uh, on, right. Like, <laughs> do we, is that the right word for this thing? Because um, what do we want from this act of evaluating the teachers, right? That's a, I think that's a great place to start with all of these problems. What is the desired outcome? Right. Do I want the teachers to be able to get better? Um, then I don't know if using an evaluative system is going to get us there, right? So yeah. if I want them to get better, I need to come in with, okay, how do I help everybody grow? Um, maybe it needs to be more personally question-based. Every teacher, mm -hmm. and, you know, yeah. these are the things I am interested in learning about right now. Right. I don't know. Yeah. You know, for example, <clears throat> where you say that you're an effective teacher, um, another way to put that would be 
And and that's very subjective. Like, uh, how do you figure out a system to determine your effectiveness? Yeah. But if, but if if what you are, what you claim you are, is relentlessly focused on helping kids grow and become their best selves, well, then I'm like, okay, let's look at the evidence. Um, yeah. Right. And then then it becomes all focused on the kids and not necessarily on you, um, and what environment that you put them in so that they may grow like that. Right. Yeah. And so yeah, I'm just casting around for a, a different way to approach this that can bring people together rather than well, have and them that's divide a, up. That's an interesting um, idea that you bring up. Like, you know, you examine, you look at the learning space that the teacher creates as opposed to looking at um, the teacher's, you know, it's specific individual actions or is the objective written on top of the lesson plan and is that posted on the website or whatever. Right. Um, so somehow how do you examine the fabric of the actual learning environment? What are students doing inside it? Um, and how is the teacher involved in, yeah, making that yeah. something where students are always pushing forward, always growing? Right, right. So, Jonathan, before we go to the first quick break, um, I, I'm not really actually looking specifically for a response to this question, but um, in the context of your work as as a Hawaii State Teacher Fellow, you were in the original cohort of that yeah. program, um, and you, you worked with other fellows and policymakers to suggest and create solutions to the critical issues in education. Um, so today, in, in early 2021, what are like the two or three absolutely critical issues in education that we need to talk about in this year? and the next year. Yeah, I I think that a few of the issues are perennial. Um, in Hawaii specifically is, you know, teachers, uh, teachers from here staying here, teachers mm -hmm. that are connected to the community that are part of the fabric of this place. That's an important thing. And we don't, have an answer to that problem. I, the Hawaii DOE has not been able to focus um, on that effectively. Mm -hmm. um, they're still casting about to how do we entice people from the mainland to come here for two or three years. So that's a to me that's a perennial issue. Um, and I'm um, another one. Sorry, you weren't asking for specific answers. Nope, um, nope. Just what the issues are. Yeah. So and then the another issue. I think is that's coming up right now because of this pandemic that we're in or have been in is what does school, what's, what does school even look like? What should school mm -hmm. even look like? Like we should be taking this opportunity to question a lot of the quote the unquestionable um, ideas about school. You know, we have these like solid definitions of like, a classroom is a place where you go. Attendance means you were in your seat on time. Hmm. Um, homework is this. Discipline policies are that. I think we need to be questioning all of those things right now. Are there more effective student-centered ways of creating a school? Um, does a school need to be inside a building? Like that's an argument that I'm having right right now with a lot of people yeah. in in politics. You know, county council and state level are insisting on school repeating the lie that school has been closed for the last year and we need to open school and put them in buildings. And it's 
infuriating. It's a lie. Um, it's a, it is a lie. It, and it, I, you know, I would sub- submit that school, obviously school has been opened, but I would submit that school has been more creative and better for many people in these last 11 months than the prior five or 10 years. Yeah. There's, agreed. um, so those are that those are two issues mm. that I would point to. Yeah, that's great. And and actually the second one, um, we're gonna come back to that a little bit later. So that's perfect. Okay. And and the first one, I, I would posit that this isn't a Hawaii DOE problem, the life and and the ability to thrive as a teacher in our system. I think it's all of our it's all of our problems. We all have to work on this and solve this together. Um, yeah. to figure out how to, yeah, we have to value teachers enough that we all care about working on that issue, but um, yeah. be that as it may. Um, awesome. So, um, hey, everybody, let's take a minute to reintroduce today's guest, Jonathan Medeiros, a surfer, builder, and writer, currently teaches language arts and rhetoric at Kauai High School. So, Jonathan, I want to talk about your Kauai Teacher Fellowship, which two years ago geared up to collect student voice on how the Hawaii DOE informs social and emotional learning across its schools. So yeah. so what does it mean to collect student voice? And how did this work? Which, which by the way, you led that work. How does it yeah. how did it help our public schools implement SEL in our schools? It, I I loved that work that we did. It, it was um, the work that you're asking about with the students related to social emotional learning, um, came in the second year of the program. So I ran this fellowship for three years and the initial intent was to, was to bring teachers from every single school into the principal's meetings on a regular basis. Wow. Um, because part of my work as a Hawaii state teacher fellow prior to that, Mm saw me going to principal's meetings, um, you know, to, to work with them or to, to deliver some information or collect some information and bring it back to the rest of the state level group. Um, but I'm a person who's always been used to working with all of the educators from the custodian up to the superintendent. I, uh, all of those people are my equals in my opinion. And, um, that rubs some people the wrong way, mm-hmm. but I've, I have had a, a long experience and have been lucky enough to work in a lot of different settings with assistant soups and CASs and the superintendents um, across my career. So this was not new for me personally. I thought all teachers had access to this, um, these settings. And so I was I, at one of these principals meetings and I, at the end of the meeting, I asked that I could tell that the principals were a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of working with teachers. And I, on this particular problem, whatever it was of the day. And I asked them, how often do teachers come to these things? And they literally said, you're the first time, this is the first time. Wow. And, and you know, I, I thought that that was a problem. And so my, my initial proposal to the CAS at the time was, um, we need a teacher from every, what, what if we had a teacher from every school? Like we just pretend that we're all equal members of this education community. You guys are up here in this closed room talking about island-wide education problems and you're not talking to the 900 teachers on the island. Um, so that's where it started. That mm-hmm. initial intent was to 
kind of, it was professional development for teachers to kind of get comfortable in that role, but also to serve a purpose for the principals and for the complex area. Um, we're here as your partners, principals, is like the message we brought. Um, and so in the second year of the program, the principals wanted to, to focus on social emotional learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, as the teacher fellows, tried to figure out what are the best ways to, um, you know, to kind of deal with this problem of students feeling not socially and emotionally supported or enriched at their schools. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we come up, how do we go about that? And, um, there was data and there was like a, there was community data that had led to the, the principals wanting to focus on this, you know, um, depression right. rates. Uh, there was like a survey yeah. that had come out. Um, so we worked in cooperation with the principals, you know, okay, so we decided we're not going to tell you principals the answer. We need to talk to students. That was, the, that was our answer. And that's frequently my answer for everything is um, <laughs> go ask the students. Uh, what should we do with the go ask the students? Uh, um, it's a, I feel like it's a good place to start. So that was what we came up with was mm-hmm. let's ask all the students. And it's a, a big task. We yeah. literally wanted to ask all the students on the island, and we did get there. But we did survey um, a, a fairly large percentage of the student population, K to twelve, and we ran focus groups at different schools. So the the teachers in the Kauai Fellowship um, helped develop a set of questions with the principals. What do we want to know from the students? You know, we kind of went back and forth for a while at these various meetings, refining them. But then the teachers themselves, we were responsible for organizing everything. We had to make sure, you know, that the, the, this is going to be data that's usable. So we had to do that kind of mm-hmm. um, statistical stuff on the back end of the survey. We also were trying to run focus groups to get more qualitative data as well. So we ran focus groups at every school and we got hundreds of student responses on the surveys and um, then brought that information back to the principals. Right. Here is what your students on the island said about how they feel. That was the starting point to us is we can't tell you a magic way to be better. We need to start by asking the students what they see as the strengths and weaknesses in this realm of social emotional learning. Right. Um, yeah. So that took a, that took a full year. And then, you know, then the third year was unpacking that data and, and, Right. Different schools. There's this is the then this is the problem, right? I have no real power to tell schools how to run themselves. Um, so then it was up to individual principals to decide what to do with that. Right. Right. And so some schools did make some really significant changes at the school level. Um, and some principals, um, let's say, did not. Right. Right. And, and I suppose... There, the inherent goodness and in all of that is that everybody has, they're all empowered to do whatever they need to do with the data. And, you know, we hope that they're going to do something with it. Right. But, but the alternative is to tell people, everybody, what to do. Um, right. And there's, there isn't much good in that either. Right. Exactly. Right. <clears throat> so, yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. So, so I want to, b- before we go to another break, I, I want to stay with the, your, your time at the, the Kauai Teacher Fellowship. And I, okay. I was really struck by the description of the place 
you mm. and, and your teammates did your work, the Lawai um, International Center, um, yeah. which is a 32-acre community gathering place on Kauai with a focus on compassion. So yeah. uh, this is going to sound a little curmudgeonly, but sounds like a fantastic place to think and reflect and design and create. And, and yet, on the other hand, every time I drive by one of our public schools and some private schools, <sighs> I feel like I'm looking at a penitentiary for kids. Uh-huh. Like, you know, marvelous stuff might be going on, like, you know, P for C might be happening behind those walls. Walls, but still, how <laughs> do we? See it. You can't yeah. see it. So how? And and this is riffing off of your your point a few minutes ago about one of the major issues is school is always open. So how do we move forward with student centered, place based, culture based, compassion based learning when our schools do look like jails or, or juvenile homes? And am I barking up the wrong tree on this? Like, no, I think that there's a. I I would maybe maybe I would not personally focus so much on the way they look from the outside though. That is an, I mean, that's a, a point that you have. That's a valid point, but I would, I would maybe to me, it's more about these ideas that I was talking about before, where if you are married to the idea that school means a building Mm -hmm. and kids inside a classroom, inside walls, it doesn't matter what that building looks like. It could be the most beautiful building in the world, in my opinion, if you're married to the idea that it is a physical place that you have to go to and sit down in, that's the problem. Right. So it's more about the, the mindset of what do we mean by school and what is school for? So even though I'm not in the most beautiful building on the island, um, I, I have a different idea of what school is to me. So, so my school is more expansive to me and my students than it is to uh, another set of students. Um, but I, so that, I guess that's partially my answer is that mm-hmm. there's a, you, you have a mindset shift. Like you just have to decide that school is more than what happens inside these four walls, mm. which I guess seems kind of trite. I, I know people have said that before. Um, but like Aaron, I mean, Aaron, for example, what they're doing at her school is, is amazing. They, you know, the kids are going on personal student created huaka'i um, to explore the meaning and importance and history of a place that they've selected themselves. Yeah. And that's where, and so then school, like they're learning on a screen and sometimes in a classroom, but to each different student, school is a completely different place because right. of then that was just a mindset shift. That wasn't like, you don't need money for that. Right. That's not something super fancy. It's just a different way of thinking about mm. what school could be right. uh, to, to steal a phrase <laughs> that was already coined. <laughs> that was already coined. Yeah. I'm, I'm always struck because, you know, I, I live in East Oahu and I live up behind Kalani high school and uh-huh. there's, there's such a rhythm to it. You know, you, you struggle to get out of the Valley at eight o'clock in the morning because right. all the kids are coming on campus. Yep. And then you struggle to get back into the Valley at two 30 in the afternoon because all the kids are leaving campus. Right. And in between, you don't see anything. Mostly. It's like quiet. Yeah. It's very, very quiet. And yeah. so I, my hope, my dream is that more and more we start to see kids moving in and out of these spaces all day long because they're going somewhere. They're going exploring. They're doing something. They're working in the community, something like that. But that, that's, right. a, you know, that's a hope. We're getting there. No, but I think that's, you're, you're right. Sorry, I, um, very quickly. Like that is totally right on. And that's one of the benefits of 
this this year I think has shown more teachers that we can break out of that rhythm that you just described. Right. We can work outside of those boundaries. Right. That's awesome. Okay. Everybody, stay with us. After this short break, we will come back with more questions for Jonathan Medeiros. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Hawaii's business people and professionals want to support our public high school students across the state, like me, Law Yagovich, a senior at Kuku High School. And Hawaii's teachers and other educators want classroom speakers, curriculum advice, contest judges, mentors, and other support from businesses and nonprofits. The Climb High Bridge is Hawaii Department of Education's official platform to connect the two communities. It's like Match.com, specifically designed to connect businesses and schools. Learn more by sending an email to info at climbhigh.org. That's spelled C-L-I-M-B-H-I dot org. Hi, friends. Toy Hirschman here from the EntreEd Talk podcast. I am super excited to support the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast hosted by none other than the amazing Josh Rapoon. And I also want to give a big shout out to all of the incredible educators in Hawaii who are doing unreal things in the entrepreneurship and design-based thinking spaces. I hope you all subscribe and listen to What School Could Be in Hawaii. And also, hey, why not check out the EntreEd Talk podcast where we interview stellar entrepreneurial educators and entrepreneurs from across the country and globe. I cannot wait to connect with you. Hey everybody, my name is Josh Raputin and this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Today we are with Jonathan Medeiros, a language arts teacher and much more at Kauai High School. So Jonathan, um, you wrote a piece for Education Week in 2019 titled, The Magic Teachers Need from Their Principles. Um, and we've kind of talked about this already, but I want to go a little bit deeper on it. So I'm going to read an early section of that piece. Okay. Um, and so um, here goes, and I quote, Teachers are magicians, conjuring kindness and empathy as we create spaces of togetherness that are safe for vulnerability and risk-taking. When we open our classrooms at the end of each summer, we start building a positive culture right away. We find our students, Ali, Kai, Franz, Janelle, right where they are, and we accept them without wishing they were different. This welcome, we know, is the first step toward building trust and community, just one small moment among many. As I do this work, I wonder, how could school be different if all administrators started the year the way teachers do when they open their classrooms? How could administrators work consistently and purposefully to make their teachers feel known and seen? So let's have you respond here to your own question. How could administrators do this? What what gets in the way of them doing this? And by the way, you noted a very special administrator you admire, someone I interviewed for this podcast. Um, so if you want to talk a little bit about Derek Minakami, that'd be mm -hmm. that'd be cool too. 
Yeah, I mean, Derek is an amazing example of of the kind of administrator that I wish for. And and that's not to throw shade on any of my my administrators. I've had amazing administrators in the past. Um, But, you know, for example, to to be specific, Derek, for example, recently um, went through the national teacher certification process again. Mm -hmm. He was nationally board certified years ago and recertified as a, as a principal. And to do that, he had to teach. So he went and taught an elementary school classroom wow. for, uh, I don't know how long, half a year or something like that. It may have been the whole year. Um, you'd have to check with him. Maybe it was a quarter. It was a significant amount of time mm-hmm. where he's still the principal of his school, but he, he was going... Um, not full-time, right? Just one class out of the day to teach so that he could recertify. And just that mindset of that he has, that I am a, an educator. I'm currently called the principal of this school, but I am a teacher just like the other teachers here. And and he actually showed it through action, right? Mm. Um that's the kind of mindset. So to me, it's it's really about a mindset shift. I've, I've said that a couple of times now. We need to all see ourselves as part of this same education team, regardless of whether our name, our word, you know, our title is um, EA custodian, principal, or counselor, or teacher, or whatever. We need to all have that same mindset. We are all here for the same purpose. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's one step in the right direction. So that's why for, that's one of the reasons why I, I really admire Derek is that he kind of walks that talk, right? A lot of principals will say that message. We're all educators. Um, and in fact, and I don't know how, if this is um, uh, an apocryphal story or not, but, I heard this from um, Mr. Schatz, the former deputy, Kaz, mm-hmm. that he he once told me, yes, yeah, Steve. Stephen Schatz, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he once told me that the word principal is a truncated version of the phrase principal teacher. And that also really stuck with me. I wrote about that in another piece that um, we have dropped the teacher part of that and, um, and have forgotten that more important role in my opinion. So that originally the idea of a principal was this is the principal teacher in the building. This is the, the teacher who maybe helps guide us all in the same philosophical direction or whatever. This is the teacher we go to, um, for advice. Um, as opposed to now it's just principal and we've dropped the second half of that phrase, right? Mm -hmm. Um, forgetting Mm -hmm. the educate the teacher part of that role. Um, mm. so that's what, I mean, those mm-hmm. to, to be, to specifically answer the question, what, what would it look, is that way? What, what would administrators do yeah. to consistent, consistently and purposely make teachers feel known and seen? One of the things would be to walk the talk a little bit more. I'm not saying that every principal needs to go get nationally board certified. Um, mm-hmm. but if I, if for, I'll just speak for myself. If I had, if I was ever an administrator, for example, I would damn well make sure that I had a classroom that I taught for real. 
Right. Like that, I, I have been, I've passed, I've been asked to be, you know, to start the administrative program multiple times and have decided to stay in this other world because currently the definitions of teacher and administrator in Hawaii are much too rigid mm. and the walls are much too high. Um, right. I worked in the teacher, the leadership institute for years trying to, um, uh, for two to three years, trying to help them work on blending those lines a little bit. Um, and change the way we we bring teachers into the administrative world, and I just I kind of decided I that not wasn't fruitless work, but was still frustratingly yeah sectioned off. So yeah, uh, if I ever was a principal, that's what I would have a I would be a teacher at the same time. I would act like a a teacher. Mm. You know, Jonathan, a funny thing happened when I was getting ready for this interview. Um, I actually read this piece in Ed Week early um, in my process. And then I was looking at your resume, and then I just made this connection. You you talk a lot about connections that mm-hmm. you make in your mind. And, and I looked at your skill set in the beginning, and I looked at what you had written on your website, and I thought to myself, I need to just ask him about himself and his wife and his daughters and his surfing <laughs> and his building, right? That's the point. Um, <clears throat> you can often get a resume and go, okay, you're hired, go to your classroom. <laughs> but if you don't take the time uh-huh. to really get to know people... Um, And I think the best school cultures that I've seen in my travels around the islands are the kinds that Derek um, builds, where where empathy is such a huge part of what everybody does. Everybody's trying to figure out what's happening in everybody else's shoes and all that. So yeah, it's very cool. So kind of, you kind of answered my next question, but I just want to dip into it just briefly because we're we're kind of coming down to the end here. So I asked you to watch a a short film at Mm whatschoolcouldbe.org called Caring and Connected Communities. Um, The film's part of the innovation playlist um, at that site. And so here in Hawaii, our public schools have more or less been moving towards more empowerment of districts and the local schools within the district. So, um, so clearly empowerment means caring and connected is up to the community itself. Right. Um, so what are your thoughts about how to get to that North star of a caring and connected community? And do you mean community like beyond the school, like the actual community that the school sits in? Yeah, I mean, it has to start with the school because if you don't have caring and connected at the school, it's going to be hard. Um, But you definitely, you know, the more you think about school as being not central to a community, but part of a community, then it's everybody's responsibility to build the caring and the connection. And that I would, you know, these, these seem like maybe pie in the sky answers, but I think that you know, you try to blend the wall, you try to blend the boundaries between the school and the community um, that you try to create situations where for the students to learn, for the students to learn the skills and standards, but also for the students to learn curiosity, mm-hmm. empathy, um, courage, they have to interact with the community in a real way like that. So if you as a teacher or as a school have that as your filter, as you're designing the learning environment, Mm. um, that'll help connect the school to the community, right? The community needs to feel involved in and responsible for um, the community, uh, for the school, and the school in turn needs to feel responsible for and connected to the community. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, sorry to brought this up a couple of times, but 
what Erin's doing at her school is a great example of that. Like for the students to complete their learning successfully, they have to on their own go out and build relationships with people in the community that they may or may not know. Um, plus that's the teachers themselves are bringing community members in um, to the classroom regularly. So that is building these lines that, that then grow like veins, um, mm. you know, and mm-hmm. so that they're, they're becoming part of the same living body. Right. I I worry sometimes that our kids, as they go through the K-12 experience and even into college, that they're talking about empathy and courage and resilience and caring and connection all in the abstract. And then they, right. they, they hit the real world and they discover that it doesn't mean what, they, what they've thought it means or what right. they do think it means, right? And there's this shock when you yeah. arrive in the real world. So yep. um, I think it's an important conversation as, as we go forward. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, finally, Jonathan, this has been such a blast as, and, and this time has gone by so fast. I want to return to your teaching. Um, and I spent a lot of time uh, talking about the idea of small steps leading to big change. And it's, you know, my book, my podcast is inspired by What School Could Be, the book, and that's really kind of central mm-hmm. to that idea. So you wrote another piece for Education Week titled Using Bodies to, quote, Express mm. Abstract Ideas. Yeah. And, and in it, you describe two seemingly small changes that had a really strong impact on student engagement. So the first was about bringing movement to a language arts class. So what was that small step and what happened? Um, I I mean, like literally, I know you're talking, you're not talking about the tableau themselves, right? No, no, There's, not yet, that's yeah, next. So um, <laughs> just the first small step is like, I. I need to move. <laughs> so right. I, I, I'm always walking around. So I, it's, yeah, it's a tiny thing. I have my students on day one, I assign them, I break everybody up into small groups. I call them home groups. Mm-hmm. Um, they're about four or five. And so um, I kind of always think about this same pattern while I'm thinking about my day. I want students to um, process on their own um, with a partner and with, a, a group of some size. And I want students to read, listen, write, and speak or sing mm-hmm. every day. And um, I also, and then I, and then I added to that later on, I want them to move every day. And mm-hmm. that, and even just the act of moving from your seat to your home group. So to accomplish the, the first thing I said, which was I want them to work alone and in some kind of group, Every, every day I, I do that pattern. Struggle with this by yourself for five minutes. Okay, now take your proto-analysis or whatever and go into your home groups and make it better by working with the other four brains in that group. Wow. And then I discovered that the movement part is as important as the, the working with yourself and the group. So I added, I made sure every day they're also moving. So it's it's minor, but... Mm-hmm. It makes a big difference. Wow, that's just that's so killer. I mean, we talk 
when I was teaching, we, we were talking a lot about, well, you know, we'll have kids do peer editing. And, mm-hmm. and what that meant was I'm going to go to a peer to get my, my almost finished product slightly right. better so that it could land on your desk, the teacher, Jonathan, and have it graded. Here, you're talking about, I'm working on a problem and I need to struggle with it alone for a little bit. And then I'm going to go get some reactions from other people. That's right. very different. Yes. Yeah, it is. It, it, it is very different. It's, I mean, it's assuming, you know, the first one that you described is basically like, my idea is good enough on its own. I'm just seeking your advice to make it sound slightly better. Right. Right. Something like that. Yeah. Um, this other, this other lens is, um, going back to where we started, the act of talking yeah. to another human is in and of itself knowledge building, mm. Right. The goal is to have a different, not, not, a, not the same but more, and more polished idea. The goal is to have a different, more complicated idea by the time we're done talking. So it's assuming that we're not done. I can't do this on my own. Yeah. Right? Which is completely different. Yeah. Um, and so, so, Jonathan, the second was about, quote, analysis in Tableau, pictures made <laughs> out of our bodies. So yeah. what, what was that step? How did that happen? That I mean, that's something that I learned when I was a um, a National Endowment for the Humanities summer scholar in San Jose, and mm. I learned it um, from a theater teacher out there. Um, oh man, I feel so dumb right now. His name is escaping me. His father is a famous. His father's a famous civil rights theater. They would they did like um, the the migrant workers like did plays on, on the fields as a way to protest and, and, um, unionize his son. Damn, this is killing me. That I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll, I'll I'll remember it. Um, anyway, I learned it from him. They, this idea of tableau and a tableau is a frozen picture, which you've, you've Mm. seen picture, like actual photographs or paintings of tableaus, sculptures. Um, visual rhetoric is an idea that I've always had in my head that images contain meaning they're communicating an idea and i'm connected these two things where i used to just have my students analyze images already like what is the message in this image and i flipped it after this summer with these these people in san jose i flipped it and i thought what if i ask the students to communicate their analysis communicate their ideas with their own tableau so they build the picture right right and this so this technique we learned was you use your body and partners bodies to to make a a picture like like a wow like a frozen shot in a movie right or (laughs) or a so maybe the idea is power power over and how do you communicate power over with your body and three other bodies like what would you do right uh and the different students come up with amazing different ways to show, to show their idea. Right. And it gets even more complicated. Than that. So a, a group gets up there and they, they do their frozen tableau in front of the rest of the class. And then we talk about it. What are they commuting, communicating to us? Mm. What idea are they showing us? And we have a conversation. Um, and as you get more comfortable, if it's part of your class's culture, you can actually change the tableau. Like I could ask the students, can you make this picture say something else? What if I wanted to say power with? Wow. And then you'd go up and like move the frozen bodies around until you changed the image. 
And that's a completely different way to formulate knowledge, to communicate knowledge, and also you're using your body and it just feels different. You hold that knowledge in a different place. Right. Wow. You know, th that's it, Jonathan. I, I believe that I still have some high school eligibility left. <laughs> yeah, I'm, come back. I'm coming back. 63 <laughs> years old. I'll be in your classroom with you. Um, I want to do this tableau thing really it's bad. Fun. It's, it's fun. It sounds so cool. Um, so fantastic. Jonathan Medeiros, it has been such a pleasure talking to you today. Please, you and Aaron and your daughters, stay safe and in good health. Thank you for all you do to engage kids in life and learning. Thank you so much, Josh. I really appreciate uh, the conversation. And as you can imagine, I, I've selfishly gotten much more out of this. Uh, um, I, I, as I said before, I, I learn by talking. So I appreciate you being a talking partner um, for me and for all of the teachers um, across the state and country. Uh, so thank you for your work too. Awesome. Thank you, Jonathan. Take care. All right. Thank you, many, many listeners, for giving this podcast a 100% five-star rating. We appreciate you, and thank you times millions for all your wonderful written reviews. This podcast is inspired by the book, What School Could Be. Mark your calendars for the epic launch of whatschoolcouldbe.org and its companion community.whatschoolcouldbe.org, March 9th at South by Southwest EDU. If you love these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders, please give us your own rating and write us a review at your favorite podcast store. The What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Your host is me, Josh Rapoon. My editor, show consultant, and sound engineer is Daniel Gilad at DG Sound Creations. Daniel, an amazing musician, created the original theme music heard in these episodes. To learn more about Daniel or to hire him for your next music gig, see our show notes where you will find his Facebook and website URL. This series is funded by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Send your feedback to mltsandhawaii at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mltsandhawaii. Finally, please like our Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii Facebook page and YouTube channel. Please stay safe, wear a mask, stay physically distant from one another, and get vaccinated when it is your turn. Most of all, please bring kindness and compassion into the world. The gods only know how much we need both right now. See you soon. Mm -hmm.